Let me read uh, the scripture, uh, uh, Ephesians 6. I'm going to read from 10. We're preaching from verse 14, uh, but I'm going to read from 10 the verses we covered last week as it helps us with the context. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on, fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Father, we need this. We need this time with you. We need this time with one another. When we read those few verses of the schemes of the devil, the authorities of darkness, Lord, it's, it's a real battle. It's a real battle within our mind as our flesh and heart continue to long for things of this world. As the world tempts us to chase after it and, and be consumed by it, and as Satan encourages it, and lies to us and deceives us to say it is good and delightful. Lord, we just we need to come with, with a, a sense of weakness, an ability to acknowledge that we in ourselves have nothing to take the blindfold off our eyes to see your glory had no ability or intellect to comprehend the mystery of Christ crucified. And Lord, it is by your Spirit who removed the veil for us, who took that stony heart and put in a heart of flesh, that we can be teachable today. Lord, I pray for humility among us. Humility, servanthood, to recognize, Lord, the helplessness that we have and the desperate need for us to be sustained by you moment by moment. So, Lord, I pray that as your word is preached, would your name be glorified and your saints, your people, your bride, purified and equipped the work of ministry, the life in this world of fallenness. Bring glory to your name, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is wrapping up his letter to the Ephesians and he starts with the word finally and then be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. It's a clear statement to say, if he's going to summarize his book, if he's going to put like an exclamation mark on any point, it's that you can't and God can, and you need his strength and his might, because we are at war. He's, he's putting weight now on all that he said before. He's really not saying anything new in this final section, a uh, few passages. He uses a different metaphor, and the metaphor 
is armour of God, and the metaphor is to remind us how weighty the situation is that we are in. It is a weighty thing to be in a world that has fallen under the curse of sin and has a spiritual darkness or a spiritual evil one ruling this earth. So he's reminding us that our strength does not come from within, but our strength comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. If we just think back for a moment about uh, all those little stories, uh, not stories, all the different sections that we had before, from look carefully at our ways in chapter 5, or really chapter 4, we could go right back to chapter 4 and say, put on the new self, walk in a new way, imitate God, look carefully at your ways, put on humility, wisdom, love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands, children, parents, bond servants, masters. If we look at all this, the summary in the end of every single one of them was what? You can't do it. Jesus can. Jesus is our strength. Jesus is the one that we need to turn to and know in order to be the loving husband or the wife who respects her husband, her husband, or the children that obeys, or the worker that glorifies God through their work. We see here that they're listing truth, righteousness, uh, uh, faith, salvation, the word, all of these things have been mentioned before. All of these things have been mentioned in Christ. So the very saying, put on Christ, or walk like Christ, is the same as put on the armour of God. Now Paul breaks it down and makes it really clear what it means to put on Christ, is to put on truth, righteousness, faith, and so on. Now if we are to put off the old self, we talked about this a number of weeks ago, and I think it's worth emphasizing, if we have to put off the old self, the first step of putting off the old self is admitting our weaknesses. If we are to live in the Spirit, now the Scriptures often use these phrases that it's like, how does that work? Like, uh, put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, Romans 8.13. What does it mean to do that by the Spirit? Well, it means to put off ourselves by saying, we can't, I admit, Lord, that I am weak. Often our language is, I'm trying so hard to stop doing this, stop lying, stop my addiction, stop my whatever it is in your life. Stop trying and start admitting that we can't. The first point of call is confession. It always is. 1 John tells us confess our sins not only to God but to one another because he forgives us of all unrighteousness. In our confession, we're merely telling God what he already knows. We admit, God, I acknowledge and agree with you that I am weak in this area. I am lustful, I am angry, I am envy, I am whatever you have in your life. So we've got to look through this armour of God by stating first that we can't and God can, by admitting our weaknesses and knowing that it all comes through an acknowledgement that we are weak and He is strong. I want to help us with this uh, analogy I heard from David Powerson. If you don't know him, look him up. He is a phenomenal writer and teacher on anything to do with sanctification and suffering. Uh, I encourage you to have a read of his stuff. But this helped me a lot. And, and one of the things we can get into a habit of is trying to get to the next stage, so to speak, of Christianity. I want to be at this next level or the next place, or I want to have an end goal in mind. And he states that the scripture never talks about stages, but rather a destination. And the destination is the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, he says the metaphor in the Bible is that we are on a journey or on a road. And the road that we are on is the narrow road, a narrow way. And we're going towards the kingdom of heaven and we will reach our destination. That's a sure thing. We will reach it, but not in this life. So what matters is the journey. Sometimes we're running along that journey and we're running with zeal and we feel like we're getting there quickly. We're seeing sin defeated in our lives. We've got heaps of joy for the Lord. Other times we're walking and it's a slow grind. 
and it feels like it's taking its time, but then there are times when we are barely crawling. And he states that it doesn't actually matter whether we're sprinting, walking, or crawling, but what matters is that we are standing there looking in the right direction. So I want to stress that as we look at the battle that we are in, our destination is sure. You will be glorified. If you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, you will be glorified. But are you still looking in the right direction? Are you still looking towards heaven? Because your life will be a mix of running, crawling, and walking. But let us not turn our eyes away from heaven. Whether we are just sitting on the road, the narrow road, looking in the right direction, that is okay. So as we examine our walk carefully, as this letter has called us to do, we're examining today, am I standing firm, looking in the right direction, looking to our heavenly home, of being in Christ forever. Now let's unpack this verse by verse as we normally do. Stand firm. In verse 14, we're picking it up. Stand for stand. Sorry, not stand firm. Stand therefore, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, I don't know if you picked up when we read this scripture at the start, how many times it says stand in such a few verses. It almost gets Confusing, particularly at the end of verse 13, uh, where it says, to stand firm, and then 14, stand, therefore. He's really making a clear point that he wants us to do something, and it's stand firm. It's not even go forth or run, but rather stand. Be, be solid in the position that you are in. Suffering, joy, prosperity, poverty, whatever comes our way, whatever scheme of the devil that he uses against us, the object, the, the uh, object, sorry, the ultimate place we want to be is that we are still standing, and I'll use David Powerson's analogy, looking in the right direction. But he gives us ways to do this. He points out the, pretty much he explains all that he has said through Ephesians through the few pieces of armour that he lists. Now as we look at these pieces of armour, we, uh, armor, we can see them uh, listed throughout the, the, the letter of the Ephesians. Not, not so, uh, listed throughout here. And also, in Isaiah, we see all of these pieces of armour, except for the shield, which Paul would probably draw from the Psalms. So we've got this letter that has now been summed up with a helpful metaphor, really a famous metaphor that we mostly know in, in kids' church or, or if you've been a part of the church, you know of the armour of God, that, that helps us remember it, really. What is the book of Ephesians about? It's about standing firm by putting on Christ or putting on the armour of God. And, and he gives us a helpful way of thinking through that by putting on this armour. And he starts with truth. Truth is of great importance to us in our culture and really to any culture. Because we live in a time where truth is relative and you can believe your thing and I can believe my thing and that's okay. Except when we say, my truth is the only truth. But this has been the case all throughout history. The Romans were fine with Jesus because they just brought Jesus into their other gods. But as soon as the apostles said, no, it's Jesus and Jesus alone, that's when the Romans wanted to kill the Christians. It's when we say that our truth is not a, a one of the many truths, but rather it is the only truth. Jesus said, he is the only way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through him. So we can't walk around saying, yes, we accept Jesus and uh, Allah and any other means you want to go to heaven or the afterlife. We believe that there is one God. So we start with Paul saying, buckle on or put on truth. Stand firm in the fact that we are the only ones who have the truth. Ephesians 4.21 says, the truth is in Jesus. Like I said, as we unpack these uh, pieces of armour, we see that Paul's just drawing on all things that he has said before. 
Jesus is the truth. The truth is in Jesus. Without Jesus, you don't have truth. Without Jesus, what you believe is falsehood. That's, that's the message we tell the world. That is a hard message to hold on to. Now, what's the significance of the belt? Because these, these pieces of armour uh, have significance. The metaphor is there. The significance of the belt is that it holds all of it together. The belt would be buckled around the waist. It would hold the breastplate of righteous, or the breastplate on. It would hold their robes. The, the, the Roman soldiers would have uh, robes that would go down their, their legs and off their back. And what they would do when they go into combat is they'll tuck them in to their belt. It is a, uh, they would use the, the, the belt to hold all things together. Well, the Christian belt is true. And it's summed up in Jesus. Colossians tells us that Jesus holds all things together. Colossians is the, is the one that says he holds uh, everything, the visible and invisible things, together. Jesus is there holding all things together. So in our warfare, as we think about the Roman soldier going into combat and tucking in all the loose bits of armour or all the loose bits of robe, we are tucking in everything to truth. What is our truth? So we call, recall truth in our life. Jesus died on the cross and with him you died as well. Jesus rose, rose from the grave, grave and with him you rose as well. Jesus lived a righteous life and now Jesus' righteousness is yours. Jesus ascended to heaven and we will ascend with him in the end. These are the truths that hold us together. Taking one of these away will make us undone in the spiritual warfare. If you aren't convinced of the sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the holiness of Christ, Satan will ruin you. Satan will undo you. Now it's interesting that his name means accuser. We looked at this last week. Jesus, uh, sorry, the devil, Satan, the word means accuser. And Jesus said he is the father of lies. Interestingly enough, the devil is the opposite of truth. He's the very opposite of Jesus. He's standing there lying and telling us to be like him. Satan is in many ways discipling humankind into his own image. God created us in the beginning to bear his image and likeness, and Satan is distorting that to say, reflect me. Be a person of life. Be a person of hatred. Now we need to be on guard against these lies, and that's why we hold our faith together by truth. So as the lies start to creep in and we hear things such as you deserve dot 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 or you believe you start to believe that you deserve those things. You deserve more recognition. You deserve more wealth. You deserve whatever the lie is. Satan will start to subtly make you think more of yourself. The truth that we believe to counter that Jesus came to serve. Jesus, the King of Kings, came not to be served, but to serve. A humble servant is our King. So our response to those lies, when we buckle on the belt of truth, we say, no, I'm with Christ, He was a servant, therefore I will be a servant. And we can do that with whatever else the lie comes our way. So truth is buckled on and it holds us together. Truth is Jesus. Jesus is the truth. It says that in the scriptures. So we buckle on Jesus and what he says. And of course what he says is in the word Bible. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. To put on the breastplate of righteousness is to do exactly what Ephesians has said multiple times before. Put on the new life. Put on the new life, walk in a new 
waves. So Ephesians 4.24, put on the new life. Ephesians 5.9, walk in the new way. We've been born again, and the life that we have been born into is one of a holy Saviour, Jesus Christ. So when we see put on the breastplate of righteousness, well, it's twofold. The first one is you already have it on, and it's already permanently fixed to us. Because we are always in Jesus' righteousness. When Jesus died on the cross and said, It is finished, we received his righteousness, and we can't lose that. We looked when we went through Ephesians 4 about the new life, putting off the old self, putting on the new self, that that has already been done. Christ has done that for us. It's a matter of living in that status and living in and out of that identity. So the breastplate of righteousness is first, always there. We always are in Christ's righteousness. And secondly, it is our defense against the devil to live in obedience to him. When we live in obedience to Christ, when we fulfill the status of being new creations, that, that, that belief, that is an incredibly powerful, powerful understanding. When we go away and meditate on what it means to be a new creation, the scripture says the old has gone, the new has come. That means our past has no bearing on us anymore. We don't have to make excuses for it. We don't have to bring it up anymore. It's done. It's in the past. And Christ has made us new. There's forgiveness. So we're dealing with what's going on now, not what's happened in the past. And he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, act in obedience or live out the new creation that you have. Live in the new way that you are. Now, righteousness literally means to live correctly. And if we are going to define what it means to live correctly or live rightly, is the other way of saying it, is to live according to God's standard. God is the creator of all things. He has ordered and purposed the world. Therefore, he has a way in which we are to live. So to live... Rightly to live righteously is to live according to God's standards, to be obedient to Him, to live the way He wants, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Living this way is the worst thing we can do for the devil. That's what He wants us to stop doing. He wants us to live like we lived before we were new creations, loving the world, enjoying the world, thinking the world is our ultimate delight, and not obeying God. He wants our marriages to end like the world's marriages do. He wants husbands to disrespect their wives and wives likewise. He wants children to not grow up obedient, being obedient to their parents, and parents to be abusive to children. That is what the devil wants. So... We put on the breastplate of righteousness and we fight his schemes and his deception by being obedient to Christ. Now, if we want to look into the metaphor, the Jewish people believed that the heart was the source of thoughts and the vows were where we had our feelings, which makes sense when we're nervous or have anxiety, we feel deep in our stomach, we feel ill. So the breastplate of righteousness in the Jewish sense is protecting our thoughts and our feelings. The breastplate of righteousness guards us and guards our mind or our thoughts from the Jewish perspective, our heart, from these lies of the devil. And it's held together by the truth. So we see that the belt holds on the breastplate of righteousness. These, these uh, characteristics or these pieces of armour are all held together. And they all correlate to one another. Without the truth, the breastplate will fall off. We'll live in our old self. We will listen to the lies. We will not live in obedience. So we need to fight the truth. And remind ourselves, once again, of those truths. I am the new creation. I have died with Christ. I am no longer living, but Christ lives in me. Verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Continuing our same thought, our righteousness comes from truth, and we've heard truth through the gospel. 
Without the gospel, you know no truth. And Ephesians 2, 14 says, Jesus is peace. He is peace. When we come to understand the gospel, we come to understand peace, and particularly, most importantly, peace with God. We were separated from God. We were unable to know God. Righteousness wasn't on our horizon. Truth was not but there to be seen. And when the gospel came to us, we were able, through the power of the Holy Spirit being born again, to see and know the holiness of God and to know our wretchedness. And that brought peace. 2 Corinthians 5 is the gospel of reconciliation, the gospel of peace, the bringing together of separate beings and bringing us together with, uh, in Christ. We were separated from God, we are now brought near. But what Ephesians goes on to tell us is that it's not just about us being reconciled individually to God, but us as a collective, all of mankind, being reconciled to God. Slave and free, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. Whatever your status is, the, the beauty of the church is it's no longer what you are identified by. It's no longer what, you're, what you hold as value in your life, but rather you throw that aside and you say, we are one in Christ. That is what Ephesians 2 and 3 were all about. The gospel of peace and putting on the feet of their shoes ready with the gospel of peace means that we are people that strive, first and foremost, to have reconciliation, that strive to be people who live in peace. Well, 1 John is clear. If you hate your brothers, you hate Jesus. That's what he says. If you don't strive to love your brothers and sisters in the faith, if you don't strive to meet them and know them and be uh, challenged by them and you challenge them and to grow in the faith together, your faith may be false. In fact, it probably is. Of course, Satan's great. We spoke about this last week, but Satan's great. Challenge, great objective is to separate individuals from the fold, to take them from the church. The amount of Christians that wander around without being part of the gathering of the saints is many, because Satan has distorted and lied to them, and they have ignored the fact that part of the focus of the gospel is peace, reconciliation. So when we put on the shoes, we put on humility, forgiveness, and grace. And we recall that Jesus came to us when we were undeserved. Isaiah 52 is this great picture of the evangelist, and of course the main evangelist, Jesus, the bringer of good news, that's what the word means. And it says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. How beautiful are the feet. So what would happen is you'd go off to war and a person would come back with good news and they'd be coming over the mountains to Zion and they'd be saying, we've found peace. We've got peace. God reigns. God is victorious. And now the whole church can say that because Jesus, the great evangelist, the bringer of good news, the bringer of our salvation, says our God reigns and will reign over his people forever. The gospel of putting our boots on or our shoes on with the gospels of peace, or the readiness with the gospel of peace, is imitating Jesus. Going forth into communities, wherever our context is, our workplace, and telling them that God reigns. Have you ever thought that evangelism is alerting people to the reign of God? Simply what it is. Talking to people and saying, have you heard that God reigns over this place? The darkest corner? The most evil people? He reigns in this world. He will bring this place to a, to a, a, to a renewed community. He will restore this world and He will have His people. You can be one of those people if you trust in Christ. The readiness of the gospel is that we are active people, and if we are not ready with the gospel of peace, we are, peace, we are idle people. 
And idle people are under the control and the schemes of the devil. Idle people are people who have lost focus of why we exist. To alert people to the reign of God, to glorify God in our lives. The Christian who is not under the control of the devil is one who is ready with the gospel. Ready with the gospel of peace, ready to make peace with one another, ready to make peace with the world by declaring God reigns. In all circumstances, verse 16, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. As I said at the start, all pieces of the armour could be traced back to Isaiah, except for the shield of faith, which we see and have seen regularly in Psalms. If you remember back to the beginning of the year, we spoke from Psalms 3 and we saw, or Psalm 3, and we saw that in, in verse 3, it said, The shield, you are God, you are the shield about me. And we got this image, I remember we were looking at this image of this shield, God being there in front, behind, and above, this all consuming shield. Now, if we think about the Roman shield and connect this metaphor, it was the long shield. They had two types. They had the small disc and they had different words for it. We're looking at the long shield, about four or five foot in height, and they would put them together so that there was a wall and the archers would be behind them. This is the shield. And if we connect it to this psalm passage, Psalm 18 always refers to it. Who is the shield? God. So the shield of faith is what? To believe in God. The shield of faith is to know God. It's it's a simple picture of what the psalm states, that God, you are my shield. You are my strength. You are the protector. You are my stronghold. So to have the shield of faith is really to believe the things that God says and God has done. Put total trust in God. What has God said? Well, it's written down for us through the scriptures. We believe this is the word. And the word says that his son has been crucified, buried, raised, ascended. He says that his scripture is infallible, the only authority. There is no authority greater than the word of God. And and we are looking forward to the day when the Lord's coming because he's promised that he's coming. So to have the shield of faith is to remember and take up these truths. Once again, we're connecting back to the belt of truth. To believe God. To know God. And to take up the shield is an acknowledgement once again of our weaknesses. You don't take up a shield if you think your body is strong enough to cop the blows. But we're not strong enough to cop the blows. We need outside help, so we take up God as our shield. We believe what He says. We admit and agree with Him that we are weak and He is strong. We trust in His promises. He's promised that salvation will come and He will restore this world. Salvation has come and He will continue to bring it. But there's another aspect of faith. Because It's not as simple as having faith in anything, is it? Faith is only as reliable and helpful as the trustworthiness of the object in which we put our faith faith in. If our faith was in a plastic shield, it would break when the big broadsword slapped it. But our faith is not in a plastic shield. Our shield that we have is the infinite, endless, powerful God. The object in which the Christian puts their faith is a God who has existed for all eternity, eternity, has no beginning or end. So the Christian faith is dependable. In fact, we have the whole Old Testament of God's promises that he fulfills. The New Testament is literally a fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And we wait knowing that with the assurance of these promises being fulfilled, the the promises he has made to us about Christ returning 
is a sure thing. So the shield of faith extinguishes the flame of flaming arrows. Temptation, whether it be immorality, hatred, envy, anger, covetousness, pride, doubt, fear, despair, distrust, distrust, whatever sin it is, every temptation, whether it's direct, uh, whether directly or indirectly, is a temptation to doubt and distrust. Whatever that sin is. It's a temptation to distrust God, to doubt His goodness. Therefore, the shield of faith is what we need. Belief is what we need. What what Satan is saying to us is, enjoy that immorality, enjoy that sexual morality, it will be delightful. Enjoy that hatred, it will serve you. Enjoy envy, it will make you feel better. Be angry, continue to be angry. Because you are right in being angry. And he tries to lie to us and make us believe that it is delightful. He did it in the garden with Eve. And he said to Eve, did God really say that? He puts doubt in our mind about God and his goodness. Did God really tell you not to eat of any tree in the garden? And he extends the lie. Expands it. He wants us to doubt God. He wants us to distrust God. And the shield of faith is what protects us from all these temptations and sins. So when we extinguish the flaming arrows of the devil with temptation, we stand there firm in our belief of God. He is good. He is good. I'm going through suffering. I know He is good. This suffering is good for me. His ways are good. His purposes are good. His plan is good. Understanding and studying and meditating on the attributes of God is necessary in order for us to fight. Literally, the shield of faith is belief in who God is. Meditating on His holiness over and over again. Meditating on His strength over and over again. His righteousness. His judgments. His goodness. And standing firm with them and allowing them to be a shield as the devil lies and deceives us and says delight in something other than him. Or did God really say that? You put on the helmet of salvation. The fact that the helmet is related to our salvation indicates that Satan blows are directed at the believer's security and assurance in Christ. When we look at the helmet of salvation, he wants to make us believe that we are not saved. Discouraged and doubtful about our salvation. And he will use whatever he can to undo us and to put us into a place of doubt and insecurity. He'll discourage us by our failures, by the areas that we fail, whether it be education or ministry or our workplace or our marriages or our friendships, our sins, our unresolved problems, our poor health, whatever it is for you, any negative part in your life, he will use to make you doubt and be discouraged and question your salvation. The helmet of salvation is put over our mind, over our head, Securing us, protecting us from these doubts. And it's important that we understand salvation. What is salvation? Three words I'll give you to meditate on. They're big words. They're biblical words. They're in the scripture. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. The helmet of salvation is summed up in these three things, and we would do well to know them and to study them. We looked heavily at the start of Ephesians 1 to 3 about doctrine. Doctrine is what we believe as a Christian, and all Christians need doctrine. It is important that we, as believers, whether we are new believers or old believers, we need doctrine. We need to know God. And knowing God is sets of beliefs, and we need to know about our salvation. So 
fighting or having the helmet of salvation on our head is to understand justification, justification, sanctification, and glorification. I mean, simply define them. Because they are easily defined. Justification. Christ's death saved us once and for all from sin's penalty. Christ's death saved us once and for all. We need no other means, no other work. In the moment we repented and believed, Christ's death was sufficient for us. Sanctification, His life within us now is saving us day to day from sin's power and mastery. Sanctification is the process of us being cleansed of sin. And it's Christ's power in us, His righteousness, that is strengthening us day to day over sin's mastery. In glorification, we will be saved forever from the presence of sin. We'll be saved forever from the presence of sin. That means no more lies. That means no more evil thoughts or no more questioning of people's motives. Glorification. Oh, how we as believers need to dwell in the thought of glory more often. To have our minds seated and thinking and meditating on the riches of heaven. And our problems would seem so much smaller in this place. Our entitlements would drift away as we realize that it's not about us, but about Jesus. He is the one who will be glorified in heaven. So when we have the helmet of salvation on, we are saying, I am saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved from sin's power in my life. And I will one day be saved from the presence of sin. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. A person who has lost one of these truths will be crippled by Satan's lies. One of them. If you've lost your touch of heaven, if you've forgotten that you're going to be in heaven, you'll become consumed with this world. If you've forgotten that we're in a process of sanctification, every time you stumble and fall, you will beat yourself up. And if you've forgotten the fact that we are justified by Christ's death alone, then you'll continue to beat yourself up. These truths are what protect us from doubt and discouragement in our faith. We need to remember over and over again. Remember, He saved us. He finished it. He's sanctifying us and He will glorify us. He will bring us to glory. And finally, he wraps up the armour with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword is the only attacking part of the armour. And it actually holds all the others together. Because without the Word, you don't have truth or righteousness or the Gospel, faith or salvation. The Word is all these things. The Word is truth. The Word is your righteousness. The Word word tells you about righteousness. The Word is the Gospel. The Word gives you faith. And the Word brings salvation to you. Without the Word, you don't know doctrine. Without the Word, we don't know God. That's why He gave us a written Word. Imagine how messed up the Word would be if it was just thoughts in our mind and everyone had a different opinion of thought. And He gave us a written Word of the last centuries, millennial. So that we can know Him and we can know our position before Him. So the end of this is a strong challenge and a firmness to know the Word of God. How often do we say, are you reading the Bible and praying? And next week we will look at prayer as it wraps up this section. But right now thinking of just the Word, are we reading the Word? How often, I don't know, I've said as a pastor to, to myself as well, but to others, are you in the Word? Because you can't fight in the spiritual battle if you don't have the sword. You don't have truth. You don't know your righteousness or who it belongs to without the Word. You will be left wandering about in this world. Ephesians 4, 3 says, Equip the saints for the work of ministry so that they are unswayed by the deceitfulness of this world. We need to know the Word of God. 
As a, as, a, as a believer, there is no other way to be sanctified. Peter, 1 Peter 2 tells us that if we would grow up in our salvation, we must love the Word as a child loves milk. If we are to grow up, if there is no other way to grow up into your salvation than to know the Scriptures. No way to fast track it. No way to progress. You can't listen to enough sermons. You can't be around enough people. You have to discipline yourself to be in the Word and reading it. And yes, seeking counsel, that is part of it. Because we can be deceived by Satan's lies. But we must learn to discipline ourselves. Paul says he beat his body and made it a slave so that he would not be disqualified. He knew that he himself, if he drifted away from the word of God and from prayer, he would disqualify himself from ministry. So he beat his body and made it a slave. There is a place for Christian discipline to set aside time and have a plan in place in order for you to study the scriptures. Because I am seeing in our world of, of materialism and entertainment Many malnourished Christians. Many malnourished Christians. And I don't say this as a legalistic bent. I've said this before. This isn't legalism to read the Word. This is life. This is your bread and your oxygen. We don't claim that breathing is legalism. Or eating is legalism. The same is true for our Word. Reading and studying of the Word. I'm going to impart with you this metaphor that I read. A man was looking in the garden, and he was looking at the flowers of the garden. And he saw a butterfly flying through the plants, and it rest upon a flower moment by moment, real quick, jumping from flower to flower. And then he saw a botanist come through. And he grabs his magnifier, magnifying glass out and studies one flower and writes many notes for hours. And finally, a bee comes by, empty, and rests upon the flower and takes as much as it can from that flower until it is full and flies off. We can be like the butterfly that jumps around the scriptures or has no real routine. Or we can be like the botanist who studies in depth but has no real affection for the word and isn't stirred deeply. Or we can be like the bee who comes empty and absorbs everything that it can until it is full and not until it is full. goes away. Of course we can't spend every day and moment of our day in the word. We would literally probably do ourselves in. It is too glorious for us to spend that much time. But we are to go to it empty, fill ourselves up, and go from it full into this world. And of course we will be emptied again like the bee goes off to its hive and empties itself and comes back again. We must come back. I have found that I can't go from morning to morning. I need the word pretty much as I need food. Morning, noon, and night. That is a discipline I found helpful. I don't do it all the time, but I encourage you to find the discipline that works for you. Let me finish with a quote from John Piper. He says, One of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook and I'll add any entertainment for that matter, will prove that on the last day, last day, prayerlessness and wordlessness was not from a lack of time. Twitter, Facebook, entertainment will prove on the last day that we had plenty of time to read and pray. So time is not our issue. Discipline is our issue. How will we know truth? How will we know the one in whom our righteousness stands? How will we know the God in whom our faith is in? If we don't study the Word and learn to love the Word of God. I plead with you, if 
there's only one thing you get out of being a gospel church. Please let it be that you have a discipline in the world and prayer. Jesus' name.